Good morning, everyone. If you want, you could turn to Deuteronomy 17 and just put your finger there. We are going to be looking at the, the book of 1 Kings. I've entitled this Domination to Division. Uh, we will look at the zenith of the nation of Israel, the highest of heights, probably at that time the greatest kingdom on the earth, and we will see it quickly devolve and descend into unspeakable idolatry. And we will try to pull the lessons that this book has for us and apply it to ourselves today. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you are a God that has made a way and provided access into the holy holies through the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have the Holy of Holies now living within us through the Holy Spirit. That the communion can be open and free and rich. At the same time, Father, we are people of flesh. We live in a wicked world and we easily become tainted and stained by it. And so we pray, Father, this morning as we look into this, this book of Scripture, that be more than history, it be lessons that we should not crave the evil things that people before us have, that we will look at their judgments and your righteousness and your holiness and that we would properly tremble before you and reverence you as a holy God. Pray that you'd open our minds and hearts. Pray that you put your words in my mouth as feeble and sinful as it is, that you would, you would touch my lips this morning, that you would Open my mind to be able to speak your words to your people, that their hearts will be ready to hear. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I coached uh, high school soccer for 10 years. I coached varsity boys for three years, and that wore me out. So I coached girls for seven years, and that was a much more enjoyable experience, quite frankly. And as a coach, one of the things you're doing is you're evaluating your players. You're looking at their strengths and weaknesses. You're also especially looking at effort. And as a coach and as a former player that didn't have the most talent but really worked hard, I was especially disappointed when I saw half-hearted effort. You may not have the talent that someone else does, but I always wanted to see that you put your very best out there, whether it was in practice or whether it was in the game. And even more so if you had the talent but you wouldn't work at it, that would drive me crazy. That would be a very frustrating thing. There's something about looking down and seeing half-hearted effort, or only half a heart given, that must break the heart of God. We're going to see that this morning because the operative word in the book of First Kings is half. It's half. Solomon is the king with the half heart for God. And we see it kind of very divided. We see it half of his rule and then the other half. Not just today he's, he's for God, tomorrow he's not for God. It's that there was an intense commitment for half of his life. And then there was distraction, compromise, and opening the floodgates of idolatry. The kingdom is also divided into two parts. Israel with ten tribes to the north, we find when we get to chapter 12, and Judah with the two tribes to the south. 
And the book itself is divided right down the middle. The establishment of Solomon, his reign is the first 11 chapters, and then the division of the kingdom is the second 11 chapters of the book. Give you an overview. We see that there is the establishment of Solomon, the rise of Solomon, and then the decline of Solomon. It all happens in the first 11 chapters. And it's an amazing thing to see this man be humble and filled and blessed. And it's also very disappointing to see how quickly that descends. The second half, we'll look at the, again, the divided kingdom. We'll see how the kingdom gets divided. We'll see some of the kings and basically flip-flops. You'll look at some kings of the northern ten tribes of Israel. Then you'll look back at some kings and Judah, and it kind of goes back and forth, and the chronology is all marked out between each of those kings' reign from overlapping one another. The first half is a time of tranquility. The second half is a time of turmoil. The uh, capital of, of Judah is in Jerusalem. Also, as it's united, that's the place. But then it becomes divided between Samaria and the northern kingdom. Jerusalem continues to be the the capital in the south. Then we're looking at basically 120 to 140 years of Israel's history. To give you uh, a sense of a timeline here in your notes, Israel kind of burned through kings pretty quickly, where Judah was a little bit more established, especially because how many, how many good kings in the north? None, zero. So we're going to at least see two good kings in the kingdom of Judah, Asa and Jehoshaphat. I, I meant to put this in here, but you don't, you don't have to like, you know, speed right here. But I wanted to show that there is the ministry of prophets to both kingdoms. To Israel, there were five prophets during that period of time, Ahijah, Ido, Jehu, Elijah, and Micaiah, Micaiah, and you'll see them pop up. Sometimes you won't see them in First Kings. You'll have to go to First Chronicles to cross-reference those. In the south, there are also five prophets: Shemaiah, Azariah, Hanani, Jehaziel, and Eliezer. And those people were faithful servants of God. They spoke the word of God. And they're what we call the royal prophets. It's not that they didn't have ministry to the nation, but God specifically was working to the king and through the king to the people. And so these prophets were sent by God to speak the truth to them, to warn them, to pronounce judgment when they wrote God's law and went their own way. And they had a tremendous ministry. And especially when you think in some of these cases, they were a very, very small minority of the people that were doing the right things. Because it says in repeated places that this king basically set up his people and moved his people to worship idols. The king had that kind of influence. Authorship is presumed, according to Talmudic tradition, to be Jeremiah. And that may be disputed, but there are some 
signatory things that show up in the book to give us the idea that it was at least a prophet who had access to the royal documents and who lived at the end. There's a phrase that says, and to this day. It's somebody looking back on the history and basically prophetically telling the story of the kings. Not just so much what did they accomplish and who they were and what kind of character do they have, but to basically set the stage for why God at the end of this, these kingdoms was just and right to send them off into captivity. The northern kingdom going in 722 BC to Assyria, and then later the kingdom of Judah going under the king of Babylon into captivity. As we look back when we were in the book of Daniel, you see that that he makes reference to, aren't these accounts written in the book of Solomon? Or aren't they written in the books of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah? And, um, and again, the phrase, and it is so to this day, that he's looking at things that were perpetuated and started in some, maybe some hundreds of years past, but now they're still persisting. We have the same problems the writer is basically saying, and here's why, this never got rooted out some key verses. 1 Kings 4, 4 and 5, there is a blessing. There is this, this tremendous outpouring of, of God's favor, but in 1 Kings eleven eleven, we see the consequences of disobedience. And as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances that I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Tremendous perspective, tremendous opportunity laid out. And so the Lord said to Solomon, here's the consequences, because you have done this thing, and we'll see what that thing is, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17 because this really is the background to those two verses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God predicts, remember Deuteronomy, I taught on that. Anybody remember about that book a few weeks ago? That was the second chance for the second generation. It was the giving of the law the second time. And unique to the first giving law, God kind of starts to lay out prophetically what will happen in Israel's history. And notice in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 14, he says, And when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. But Pastor Dave was just telling the kids. It's not enough to have an invisible king. We need somebody we can see and touch and appeal directly to and see that he can do things, you know, that are just as great as all the kings around us. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wise for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God says very clearly, you got to have the law. If you're going to execute the law, if you're going to rule people, you have to have the law at the forefront of your mind and heart. You have to have it with you. You have to repeatedly read it and remind yourself. Why? Because God knows as human beings, we just want to wander so easily. Maybe not even intentionally, it's just the way our feet kind of walk. We don't want to go this way. You know, John 3 says, men don't come to the light. Why? Because we have evil deeds. We don't want to be exposed. We don't, we don't like to be in the presence of the holy God unless we're walking in holy ways. And this was the prophylactic. This was the, the protection. This was the way for the king to rule in the right way. He had to have his own law that he read daily. And remind himself and we'll see the wonderful thing the two kings actually did this they obeyed it and they had great blessing now looking into the united kingdom first 11 chapters we see the kingdom is established <clears throat> it starts out uh you know winding up the reign of david and he's old and uh he's kind of tuning out and seeing you know Things are happening outside his purview. And one of the things is one of his sons, Adonijah, basically says, hey, I should be king. Let me kind of get my team together, and they can anoint me, and they can pronounce, you know, that I'm going to be the king. But God had already called out Solomon as as a descendant that would rule. And so Bathsheba gets wind of this. She gets Nathan the prophet together. And she goes and she implores David and says, hey, please anoint this one whom God has set aside, my son Solomon, to be king. And they basically go about it and they, they get to slip on him. And Solomon gets anointed and proclaimed king. And everybody goes about cheering and, and, and celebrating. And Adonijah is kind of like caught in a lurch, like, okay, I'm stuck now. <laughs> you know, uh, this is not going to go well for me. And... Um, and so Solomon is installed, and David gives his last words to Solomon. He basically says, hey, I'm the man of war, but let me give you an insight. There's some people that were not loyal to me. There's some people you got to worry about. And basically, what a brutal, brutal time. Basically, you better just take them out. It's almost like a godfather. You know, you want to rule, you, you take care of your enemies. And then he does that, and his kingdom's established. And from there, he begins this great movement, and God comes to him and blesses him and says, hey, look, you're the one of my choice. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Anything you want, you name it. And Solomon has a tremendous answer. He asks God very humbly, this is your great people. These are your people, and if I'm going to rule them, I'm going to need great wisdom. And God's pleased with that. Not only does he give Solomon the greatest wisdom that any human being aside from Christ has ever had, but 
he gives him everything else beyond that he did not ask for. And Solomon begins to set up the rule of his kingdom, and he does a lot of administration. He puts certain people, trusted people in places, and it begins to build the foundation with ultimately the goal, which was always very clear to him from David, that David had set aside a lot of materials and, and a lot of wealth, but son, you will build a house for God. And in that description, in the rise of Solomon, chapters 3 to 8, we see that not only does Solomon build a house for himself, which is unspeakably rich and, and extravagant, but he even ups it even more when he builds the temple. I mean, gold like water. Like, like things were just painted all over and covered with gold. And that's after they were really nice things before, like ivory and, and cedar. And then he just like, let's go all in. Let's just put gold on everything. It was one of the most magnificent buildings in the ancient world. And we come to a point where it's ready. And in chapter 8, if you turn there, 1 Kings chapter 8, we see some of this uh, that we just, have just sung about. And I appreciate the songs that were chosen this morning. They just give us this sense in which, man, Solomon is all in for God. It's, he's all in. His wisdom is, is a servant to him to, to judge the people. To, I mean, the kings of the earth sent, either came themselves. The queen of Sheba came. These people came from the ends of the earth to hear and get advice because of the report of Solomon's wisdom. And we see this, this heart kind of shown out in how he calls the people together and declares a feast of dedication, we are going to offer up this amazing, beautiful thing for the purpose it was created for, and that is to bring the presence of God among our people. And notice in chapter 8, verse 10, and we see just the preliminaries, you know, the, the furniture's coming in, the priest kind of exit the Holy of Holies, and boom, God comes down, and people can't even stand up anymore. And it came about, verse 10, when the priest came from the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick cloud, and I have surely built thee a lofty house, a place for thy dwelling forever. Then the king faced about and blessed all the assembly of Israel, with all the assembly of Israel was standing. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father, David, and has fulfilled it with his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people from Israel, from Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you, he shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in place of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set a place for the ark in which it is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. 
And he goes on and prays this magnificent prayer of dedication. And then he calls the people and, and blesses them. And in verse 54, it says, And it came about when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication of the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments and statutes, his ordinances, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments as it is this day. And notice <laughs> this huge sacrifice takes place. I mean, man, what a bloody mess in a way. 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep, and the people came willingly. Yes, we're all in too. Do you see the power of influence that the leader has? Solomon's whole heart is toward God, and the people are right there with him. Wonderful thing. Oh, that it would have lasted. Because in chapters 9 to 11, Solomon, it's, it's almost like, he should have got another purpose, you know, because now he's got people coming to him and they want to see this extravagant building and they want to hear Solomon's wisdom. And then what happens? They start just like, hey, here's a bunch of gold. Why don't you have this? This is for you, Solomon. Uh, hey, how about some chariots? How about some horses? And what happens slowly by slowly, he starts to disobey the instructions of Deuteronomy 17. He got all wrapped up. If you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which we will in several weeks, he was, he was all about everything. He wants to master everything. He wants to master science and zoology and weather and his mind. And, and then on top of that, we have another problem. Because not only does Solomon multiply wealth and horses and chariots, which God said not to do, he multiplies wives. 700 wives and 7,000 wives. And concubines. And a lot of these are just trophy wives. They're like, I'll make alliance with this king. Hey, I'll marry your daughter. I'll give her a place to stay. But he is imperceptibly decision by decision compromise by compromise he's getting farther away and his heart is growing cold and we see that as god predicted he takes these wives and to make them happy they're not they're homesick i want parts of my land i want this i want that and you know most guys want to make their wife happy so it's a problem when you got that many wives and they're idol worshipers. And he takes wives, first of all, the tribes that they never destroyed, right around them, 
the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Sidonians, which were to the north and on the coast, and they bring their gods with them. And these are wicked gods. These are gods of war. And these are goddesses of fertility. And these statues begin to become more and more lewd. And they're set up on the mountain. That is a mountain of olives as we know today. But they set them up on the top of the mountain. Why? Well, probably from the palace, they could feel comforted, those wives, where, where their housing quarters. They could see over the wall and see all their gods sitting up on the mountain. How convenient. And then the people started to get tempted, like maybe there's something to these guys. Maybe we'll go up to the grove. And it just evolved. And God says, you, you broke my word, Solomon. And so here's the consequences. I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. You're going to have enemies. It's going to be broken up. And where you've had tranquility your last years are going to just be a grief of strife and opposition and battle. In your old age, like he's pushing, you know, 80. <laughs> and he's got to deal with this now. And God says, my word is sure. And these were really detestable, as the Bible says, detestable idols. You know, Asherah was a moon goddess. It has Asherah, which we see later, which are the actual idols. These basically were idols of naked women that were in the midst of pregnancy. And they were goddesses of fertility. And you would come if you wanted to have a kid and you made an offering and you burned some incense. And of course, Molech was associated with child sacrifice. It's said that, that the real Moloch was made of bronze and they had a fire pit in its belly and would heat up his arms and then these people put their babies on there to sacrifice them, like alive, to appease the God. Israel somehow got involved in all that. The kingdoms divided, chapter 22, 12 to 22. And we see that nothing of note really happens in the northern kingdom except just problem after problem. We see that Jeroboam, who was basically raised up, he actually gone to Egypt, kind of got fortified. He comes back after the death of Solomon, and he basically hangs out until he sees what Rehoboam is going to do, until he can strategically make his 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 lunge for power. And so what happens is people come, and of course, Solomon had put a lot of people into slavery, or you know, basically servitude, to make all this kingdom work. And they come and they say, you know, Rehoboam, the, the older guy say, okay, the people are worn out here. You need to kind of ease back and like take care of them a bit. And Rehoboam goes to his friends, and what do you think? He says, oh man, no, you need, to make, you need to make everybody know that you are the new sheriff in town. You put it on them heavier. And so Rehoboam listens to those dudes, and he says, Oh, my father, you know, afflicted you with whips. I'm going to afflict you with scorpions. How to make friends and win influence, right? And he pushes it 
hard on the people and the ten tribes of the north said, we're out, man. And Jeroboam takes his opportunity to come along and say, hey, I got my own beef and I'll lead you guys. And he becomes the king. And the cause of this division was the foolish arrogance of Rehoboam. Just he would not listen to the good counsel. And he's stubborn. Reign of Jeroboam, well, it didn't start too well because he just continued the idolatry in a different way. He says, wait a minute, we came out of Egypt and there was a golden calf and we got everybody rallied around that. Let's have two golden calves. So they make these golden calves to worship and bow down to and to make offering to. And then he basically says, no qualifications for the priest. Let's make them political appointments. If you want to be a priest, I, I can get you in. And so he has unqualified people. And I always wonder, would the Levites have gone up there anyway? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I mean, probably not. So they're left with a vacuum, and they fill it with people who are not qualified, who just perpetuated the idolatry. And then we see the rise of the prophetic ministers. Like we said before, God starts repeatedly coming in, calling people to account, going to the kings, calling out their wickedness, calling for repentance, warning them. This is the consequences you're heading toward. And they persist. Well, in the reign of Rehoboam, it's marked by the continued idolatry of his, of his father. Now it expands into immorality and into strife. And we find that one of, the, one of the commentaries is Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they kept having civil wars with each other their whole, their whole rule. They could never get it resolved and be at peace. Then we come to chapter uh, 15. We have two, the reign of two kings in Judah. One is Abijam. He's the son of Rehoboam. The only good thing he did was he gave birth to Asa. <laughs> and it's like, God bless Asa. Man, what a, what a great guy. It says the, uh, the commentary of him is, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all of his days. Wow. Man, that gives you chills. That, if that was on my tombstone, <laughs> that would be wonderful. And Asa did some amazing things. He wiped out all the idols in the land. He even took down his mother's Asherah, <laughs> the goddess idol. He just took it out. There's one problem. It says he still left some stuff on the high places. Didn't get rid of all of it. Just left a little bit up there. Maybe not the real prominent stuff, but maybe left some of the groves of trees where people could go in and offer their incense. Just kind of maybe keep the peace. It was the only downfall. And then in uh, chapter 15 to chapter 16, we go back to Israel, and we have this revolving door of kings. And some of them are related, some are not. Basically, it's a lot of like, I'm stronger than you are. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to be the king. And then it comes back on them. Nadab, Nadab the son of Jeroboam, reigned. And Baasha uh, killed Nadab. And in prophetic fulfillment, he wiped clean all the descendants of Jeroboam, which God had predicted through the prophet. Jeroboam, you're doing all this idolatry. You're, worshiping, you're, you're bringing the people to serve these calves. You're having people go about and try to be priests that have no qualifications, your whole family's going to get wiped out. There's not going to be a descendant after you. And well, 
Vaashi is a guy that takes care of that. But it says he followed in Jeroboam's wickedness and idolatry. He didn't learn the lessons of why this guy just got wiped out, and God used me to be his servant to do that. And then our Elah, son of Vaasha, he's just another idolater. And uh, some of these people have very short reigns, as you can imagine. They kind of burned out God's patience pretty quickly. Well, Zimri, who was Ella's chair commander, basically says, I see an opening here. So he kills Ella and all his household. And he only reigns seven days. He was king for seven days. He, kept, he basically was a useful, useful idiot, as someone would say. I mean, yes, he got rid of Eli's uh, wickedness, but he wasn't any better, and he kind of basically just put himself in charge. And when he sees that, Z- that Omri, the commander of the army, is coming, like he's under Omri. He knows Omri's coming with the, with the full forces. He just sets his house on fire and lets it collapse and kill him. So pretty ignominious ending. Omri becomes the commander of Ella's army. Uh, the commander of Ella's army, it says, and this is a commentary, he acted even more wickedly than all the ones that were before him. So it's kind of like, as you go through the kings of Israel, they're trying to see if they can outdo the last guy in being wicked and doing despicable things. Omri reigns for a while, and then his son, Ahab kind of has a long reign and a very noted reign in the book. We see that Ahab, and he did even more wicked than, their fa- than his father had said it. So not only is he not satisfied with the gods that were already there, he goes up to Sidon and he brings Baal worship down along with a wife named Jezebel, who was Sidonian. And, you know, it's like Ahab is like piling one idols on top of the idols. Idol worship of Baal was very noted in that region, and it says he also made the Asherah. So now he's even bringing some of the stuff from the south, and we're going to put these fertility goddess idols up as well. And really, Ashtoreth and Baal were kind of the consorts in that day. You know, one was, you know, one was the the god of the creation; the other was the goddess of fertility, and they consorted. And that's how that went. Well, anyway, in this reign, we all see, see side by side that God raises up this amazing prophet Elijah. And in these six chapters or so, we see just about as much about Elijah's life as we do Ahab, but they're intertwined. And one of the things that we see very significant in the recording of this, this period of Israel's history, especially between Ahab and Elijah, is Elijah is blessed with the ability to perform these miracles. And there are five that are, that are noted, that he comes and he predicts, there's, hey, get ready, there's going to be a drought. Nobody's going to have any water. So it comes. And then he goes and there's a provision of food where he needs to be taken care of because nobody else has any food. But he goes to this uh, Gentile woman and she takes him in and he says, look, just continue to feed me. Your, your grain and your oil will, will not run out. And they didn't. And then her son dies, and then he resurrects him. And, you know, then there's uh, the big conflict with the prophets of Baal. And fire comes down out of heaven and laps up the sacrifice, the altar, the water, the whole, the whole works is gone. And basically, 
Elijah says, hey, make a choice. You just saw power displayed. You, this is your God. You can repent. You can go back to him. And apparently some did, as we find later, that there are 7,000 people that Elijah's told who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I mean, what a small, small minority when you think about it. But at least there's 7,000 in the midst of all the wickedness that maintained their loyalty to God. Then we see the misery of Elijah in chapter 20. He goes through depression. He runs away because his life is at stake. He's in self-pity. He says, Lord, let me die. And that's when God tells him, hey, you're not the only one. There's 7,000 other people there. Be encouraged. And then there's some victories over Syria that are predicted that, that Ahab is blessed with over the, the Syrian or Aramean king. And then he goes and he, he's got no battles and he goes whines about this choice vineyard of Naboth and his wife plots and kills the man and he takes over the vineyard. And Elijah comes to him again and says, this thing you're doing is wicked. You've participated by taking this vineyard over in the blood of an innocent man. And basically, you're going to die. This is so wicked, so greedy. And amazingly, Ahab humbles himself. This guy who's done more wickedness than everybody else, he humbles himself. And God says, okay, you're still, you're still going to die, but I won't let all this happen until it's your your kids, you know, when the real judgment comes down, it'll be your descendants. Then we flip back down to the end of the book. We see the reign of Jehoshaphat, which was the second good king. Not a lot said about him other than the fact that he cleared the idols out, except he left the, the high places for the incense offerings to still go forward. And of course, Ahaziah, he's another Baal worshiper like his parents, Ahab and Jezebel. Nothing of note there. What are the themes of this book? We travel basically, like I said, 120 to 140 years of Israel's history. We have seen the zenith of a kingdom that was renowned in the ancient world. It lasted 40 years. That, that, I mean, look at all of Israel's storied history. The height of the height lasted 40 years a blip in history why does babylon last hundreds why does other kingdoms why does greece last hundreds why does why does god because they're a covenant relationship with that nation it's the principle that's mentioned in the gospels to whom much is given much will be required. God judges righteously, and he gave Solomon every opportunity to have a whole heart his whole life. But he went aside. Idolatry provokes God's righteous anger and judgment. That's a lesson here. Idolatry provokes God's righteous anger and judgment. It's a commandment, one of the ten. You shall have no other gods before me. I don't know how many words that is in Hebrew, but I'm sure it's just a few. Very simple, straightforward. The second theme is God is patient and his heart is moved when there is even the smallest step toward repentance. Man, this really wicked guy Ahab, God kind of 
sees that he humbles himself at the news of Elijah, and he's like, I really screwed up here. Man, that was not good. God just like, okay, I saw that. That's, that, that's something that, that begins to move my heart. Number three, idolatry is like a pervasive weed and can't just be cut. It must be rooted out. It must be rooted out. Two great kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, they did all these tremendous, tremendous things. And if you don't think there wasn't real wickedness, it says in the account Chronicles of Jehoshaphat that he got rid of the male cult prostitutes. Now just let your mind go there a minute. Why were there male cult prostitutes in Judah? There's a lot of wicked idolatry going on. It has to be rooted out. You can't leave that little grove for incense offerings. Yes, you got rid of the big idols. You got rid of the lewd statues. You got rid of the things that people were sacrificing on. But you just let a little bit there that should have been wiped out. And then finally, the other theme is that the leader sets the pace for those that follow. The leader sets the pace for those that follow. Again and again, it says he caused... It says the king caused the heart of the people to go after idolatry. That's a terrible, terrible indictment. Some applications. We live in a world of idolatry. We live in a world of idolatry. This was a Grammys just a few weeks ago. There's a guy named Sam Smith. And on the right is a man who thinks he's a woman named Kim Petras. They not only had this big scene of basically what's looked like satanic worship in the Grammys that night, but they actually won the top award for some performance or whatever. That's what our world thinks is great. And then we have the cult of child sacrifice. We call it abortion. People call it pro-choice. Yes, you did choose to kill a human being made in the image of God, whether in the womb or even now, they want to kill him outside of the womb. There's a bloodlust in our land. It's only the patience and mercy of God that it is not the consequences that we deserve right now. Maybe it's because God's patience, he's looking at the minority of us that are calling out for God's mercy, for God's patience, for God's revival to change the wickedness of our world. 1 Corinthians 10, 14, speaking to the Corinthians, the same people we were looking at in the Lord's Supper, if it's not a problem, why does Paul say to Christians, flee from idolatry? Because it only starts with small compromises idolatry let's get real it's not just about wood and stone that people bow down to idolatry is anything that displaces loving God with all our heart soul mind and strength anything that displaces our desire our practice our pursuit of loving God with all our heart and soul, mind, and strength. That's what God's standard is. He's that coaches looking out there and saying, who's just 
kicking back and easing through the laps. And who's running hard bore? It is the other half of our divided heart. It's the other half of our divided heart. It is the carelessness of thinking we can handle a little bit of compromise and it won't hurt us. The carelessness of thinking that we can handle a little bit of compromise and it won't hurt us. It is who or what we turn to for help, wisdom, comfort, or strength. It is who or what we turn to for help, wisdom, comfort, and strength. You say we go from preaching to meddling. You know what these are? These can be little idols. You know, the people that came up with these things, they have a lot of power over us. My son just had his go dead. He says on the way home after buying his new one, it's a pain. It's an indictment how dependent on technology we become. That everything just kind of stops <laughs> if we don't have this. The people that design this, they have a God complex. If you're paying attention to the news, they want to mimic what it means to be omniscient. They want to mimic what it means to be omnipresent. They want to be like God in a way. And we kind of let them. I mean, when we have a problem, do we turn to Google or we do, do we turn to our Bible? We need wisdom. We need guidance. And with this, Colossians 3, 5 says there's another form of idolatry. We should consider the members of our earthly body to be dead to impurity, sensuality, immorality, all these other things. And then it says to greed, which amounts to idolatry. We, we are all, man, we are all affected by the cancer of wanting just a little bit more. If I could have this next thing and that next thing. And we justify and we say, yeah, that would be, we really would need that. And it, it's, it's hard to say it's not in the air we breathe. I'm guilty of it too. And we just need to, like, we need to have our minds kind of cleansed out so we can see clearly that we're not to love these things that are in the world or the world or love the Lord our God with our heart and soul and our mind and strength. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for your patience, your forgiveness, so grateful that you are so clear in your expectations, uh, that you mark out the way in which we should live pleasing to you. And Father, help this, this study, this book, to be a warning to us to not be so wrapped up in this world, to not be of this world, even though we have to be in it. Help us to, uh, to keep ourselves unstained by this world, to come to you in regular confession, acknowledging where we've gotten off the path and asking once again for you to... Um, open your arms of forgiveness. We thank you that the example here is that even at the smallest turn of our heart in repentance, acknowledgement, and humbling ourselves, you are quick to come alongside to forgive. 
So grateful for that. Help these to be uh, lessons on our hearts these weeks. We pray in Christ's name.